Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 7 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core. Chapter 7 Freedom. Once out of the direct path of the animal, fear of it left me but another emotion as quickly gripped me, hope of escape that the demoralized condition of the guards made possible for the instant. I thought of Perry, but for the hope that I might better encompass his release if myself free, I should have put the thought of freedom from me at once. As it was, I hastened on toward the right searching for an exit toward which no Sagoths were fleeing, and at last I found it, a long narrow aperture leading into a dark corridor. Without thought of the possible consequence, I darted into the shadows of the tunnel, feeling my way along through the gloom for some distance. The noises of the amphitheater had grown fainter and fainter, until now all was as silent as the tomb about me. Faint light filtered from above through occasional ventilating and lighting tubes, but it was scarce sufficient to enable my human eyes to cope with the darkness, and so I was forced to move with extreme care feeling my way along step by step with a hand upon the wall beside me. Presently the light increased, and a moment later, to my delight, I came upon a flight of steps leading upward, at the top of which the brilliant light of the noonday sun shone through an opening in the ground. Cautiously I crept up the stairway to the tunnel's end, and peering out saw the broad plain of Futra before me. The numerous lofty granite towers which marked the several entrances to the subterranean city were all in front of me. Behind, the plain stretched level and unbroken to the nearby foothills. I had come to the surface then beyond the city, and my chances for escape seemed much enhanced. My first impulse was to await darkness before attempting to cross the plain, so deeply implanted are habits of thought but of a sudden I recollected the perpetual noonday brilliance which envelops Pellucidar, and with a smile I stepped forth into the daylight. Rank grass, waist-high, grows upon the plain of Futra, the gorgeous flowering grass of the inner world, each particular blade of which is tipped with a tiny, five-pointed blossom, brilliant little stars of varying colors that twinkle in the green foliage, to add still another charm to the weird yet lovely landscape. But then the only aspect which attracted me was the distant hills in which I hoped to find sanctuary, and so I hastened on trampling the myriad beauties beneath my hurrying feet. Perry says that the force of gravity is less upon the surface of the inner world than upon that of the outer. 
He explained it all to me once, but I was never particularly brilliant in such matters, and so most of it has escaped me. As I recall it, the difference is due in some part to the counter-attraction of that portion of the Earth's crust directly opposite the spot upon the face of Pellucidar at which one's calculations are being made. Be that as it may, it always seemed to me that I moved with greater speed and agility within Pellucidar than upon the outer surface. There was a certain airy lightness of step that was most pleasing, and a feeling of bodily detachment which I can only compare with that occasionally experienced in dreams. And as I crossed Futra's flower-bespangled plain that time I seemed almost to fly, though how much of the sensation was due to Perry's suggestion and how much to actuality I am sure I do not know. The more I thought of Perry the less pleasure I took in my new-found freedom. There could be no liberty for me within Pellucidar unless the old man shared it with me and only the hope that I might find some way to encompass his release kept me from turning back to Futra. Just how I was to help Perry I could scarce imagine, but I hoped that some fortuitous circumstance might solve the problem for me. It was quite evident, however, that little less than a miracle could aid me, for what could I accomplish in this strange world, naked and unarmed? It was even doubtful that I could retrace my steps to Futra should I once pass beyond the view of the plain, and even were that possible, what aid could I bring to Perry, no matter how far I wandered? The case looked more and more hopeless the longer I viewed it, yet with a stubborn persistency I forged ahead toward the foothills. Behind me no sign of pursuit developed, before me I saw no living thing. It was as though I moved through a dead and forgotten world. I have no idea, of course, how long it took me to reach the limit of the plain, but at last I entered the foothills, following a pretty little canyon upward toward the mountains. Beside me frolicked a laughing brooklet, hurrying upon its noisy way down to the silent sea. In its quieter pools I discovered many small fish, of four or five pound weight I should imagine. In appearance, except as to size and color, they were not unlike the whale of our own seas. As I watched them playing about, I discovered not only that they suckled their young, but that at intervals they rose to the surface to breathe as well as to feed upon certain grasses and a strange scarlet lichen which grew upon the rocks just above the waterline. It was this last habit that gave me the opportunity I craved to capture one of these herbivorous cetaceans that is what Perry calls them, and make as good a meal as one can on raw, warm-blooded fish. But I had become rather used by this time to the eating of food in its natural state, though I still balked on the eyes and entrails, much to the amusement of Gack, to whom I always pass these delicacies. Crouching beside the brook, I waited until one of the diminutive purple whales rose to nibble at the long grasses which overhung the water and then, like the beast of prey that man really is, I sprang upon my victim, appeasing my hunger while he yet wriggled to escape. Then I drank from the clear pool, and after washing my hands and face continued my flight. Above the source of the brook I encountered a rugged climb to the summit of a long ridge. Beyond was a steep declivity to the shore of a placid inland sea, upon the quiet surface of which lay several beautiful islands. The view was charming in the extreme, and as no man or beast was to be seen that might threaten my new-found liberty, I slid over the edge of the bluff and half sliding, half falling, 
dropped into the delightful valley, the very aspect of which seemed to offer a haven of peace and security. The gently sloping beach along which I walked was thickly strewn with strangely shaped, colored shells, some empty, others still housing as varied a multitude of mollusks as ever might have drawn out their sluggish lives along the silent shores of the antediluvian seas of the outer crust. As I walked I could not but compare myself with the first man of that other world, so complete the solitude which surrounded me, so primal and untouched the virgin wonders and beauties of adolescent nature. I felt myself a second Adam, wending my lonely way through the childhood of a world, searching for my Eve, and at the thought there rose before my mind's eye the exquisite outlines of a perfect face surmounted by a loose pile of wondrous raven hair. As I walked, my eyes were bent upon the beach, so that it was not until I had come quite upon it that I discovered that which shattered all my beautiful dream of solitude and safety and peace and primal overlordship. The thing was a huddled log drawn upon the sands, and in the bottom of it lay a crude paddle. The rude shock of awakening to what doubtless might prove some new form of danger was still upon me when I heard a rattling of loose stones from the direction of the bluff and turning my eyes in that direction I beheld the author of the disturbance, a great copper-colored man, running rapidly toward me. There was that in the haste with which he came which seemed quite sufficiently menacing, so that I did not need the added evidence of brandishing spear and scowling face to warn me that I was in no safe position, but whither to flee was indeed a momentous question. The speed of the fellow seemed to preclude the possibility of escaping him upon the open beach there was but a single alternative, the rude skiff, and with a celerity which equaled his, I pushed the thing into the sea, and as it floated gave a final shove and clambered in over the end. A cry of rage rose from the owner of the primitive craft, and an instant later his heavy, stone-tipped spear grazed my shoulder and buried itself in the bow of the boat beyond. Then I grasped the paddle, and with feverish haste urged the awkward, wobbly thing out upon the surface of the sea. A glance over my shoulder showed me that the copper-colored one had plunged in after me and was swimming rapidly in pursuit. His mighty strokes bade fair to close up the distance between us in short order, for at best I could make but slow progress with my unfamiliar craft, which nosed stubbornly in every direction but that which I desired to follow so that fully half my energy was expended in turning its blunt prow back into the course. I had covered some hundred yards from shore when it became evident that my pursuer must grasp the stern of the skiff within the next half-dozen strokes. In a frenzy of despair I bent to the grandfather of all paddles in a hopeless effort to escape, and still the copper giant behind me gained and gained. His hand was reaching upward for the stern when I saw a sleek, sinuous body shoot from the depths below. The man saw it too, and the look of terror that overspread his face assured me that I need have no further concern as to him, for the fear of certain death was in his look. And then about him coiled the great, slimy folds of a hideous monster of that prehistoric deep, a mighty serpent of the sea with fanged jaws and darting forked tongue, with bulging eyes and bony protuberances upon head and snout that formed short, stout horns. As I looked at that hopeless struggle my eyes met those of the doomed man, 
and I could have sworn that in his I saw an expression of hopeless appeal. But whether I did or not, there swept through me a sudden compassion for the fellow. He was indeed a brother-man, and that he might have killed me with pleasure had he caught me was forgotten in the extremity of his danger. Unconsciously I had ceased paddling as a serpent rose to engage my pursuer, so now the skiff still drifted close beside the two. The monster seemed to be but playing with his victim before he closed his awful jaws upon him and dragged him down to his dark den beneath the surface to devour him. The huge, snake-like body coiled and uncoiled about its prey. The hideous, gaping jaws snapped in the victim's face. The forked tongue, lightning-like, ran in and out upon the copper skin. Nobly the giant battled for his life, beating with his stone hatchet against the bony armor that covered that frightful carcass. But for all the damage he inflicted he might as well have struck with his open palm. At last I could endure no longer to sit supinely by while a fellow-man was dragged down to a horrible death by that repulsive reptile. Embedded in the prow of the skiff lay the spear that had been cast after me by him whom I suddenly desired to save. With a wrench I tore it loose, and, standing upright in the wobbly log, drove it with all the strength of my two arms straight into the gaping jaws of the hydrophidian. With a loud hiss the creature abandoned its prey to turn upon me, but the spear, embedded in its throat, prevented it from seizing me though it came near to overturning the skiff in its mad efforts to reach me. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core Chapter 8 The Mahar Temple The aborigine, apparently uninjured, climbed quickly into the skiff, and seizing the spear with me helped to hold off the infuriated creature. Blood from the wounded reptile was now crimsoning the waters about us and soon from the weakening struggles it became evident that I had inflicted a death-wound upon it. Presently its efforts to reach us ceased entirely, and with a few convulsive movements it turned upon its back quite dead. And then there came to me a sudden realization of the predicament in which I had placed myself. I was entirely within the power of the savage man whose skiff I had stolen. Still clinging to the spear, I looked into his face to find him scrutinizing me intently, and there we stood for several minutes, each clinging tenaciously to the weapon the while we gazed in stupid wonderment at each other. What was in his mind I do not know, but in my own was merely the question as to how soon the fellow would recommence hostilities. Presently he spoke to me, but in a tongue which I was unable to translate. I shook my head in an effort to indicate my ignorance of his language, at the same time addressing him in the bastard tongue that the Sagoths used to converse with the human slaves of the Mahars. To my delight he understood and answered me in the same jargon. "'What do you want of my spear?' he asked. "'Only to keep you from running it through me?' I replied. "'I would not do that,' he said, "'for you have just saved my life.' and with that he released his hold upon it and squatted down in the bottom of the skiff. "'Who are you?' he continued, "'and from what country do you come?' I too sat down, laying the spear between us, 
and tried to explain how I came to Pellucidar and where from, but it was as impossible for him to grasp or believe the strange tale I told him as I fear it is for you upon the outer crust to believe in the existence of the inner world. To him it seemed quite ridiculous to imagine that there was another world far beneath his feet, peopled by beings similar to himself, and he laughed uproariously the more he thought upon it. But it was ever thus. That which has never come within the scope of our really pitifully meager world experience cannot be. Our finite minds cannot grasp that which may not exist in accordance with the conditions which obtain about us upon the outside of the insignificant grain of dust which wends its tiny way among the boulders of the universe, the speck of moist dirt we so proudly call the world. So I gave it up and asked him about himself. He said he was a Mesop and that his name was Ja. "'Who are the Mesops?' I asked. "'Where do they live?' He looked at me in surprise. "'I might indeed believe that you were from another world,' he said. "'For who of Pellucidar could be so ignorant? The Mesops live upon the islands of the seas. In so far as I ever have heard, no Mesop lives elsewhere. And no others than Mesops dwell upon islands. But, of course, it may be different in other far-distant lands. I do not know. At any rate, in this sea and those nearby it, it is true that only people of my race inhabit the islands. We are fishermen, though we be great hunters as well, often going to the mainland in search of the game that is scarce upon all but the larger islands. And we are warriors also," he added proudly. Even the Sagoths of the Mahars fear us. Once, when Pellucidar was young, the Sagoths were wont to capture us for slaves, as they do the other men of Pellucidar. It is handed down from father to son among us that this is so. But we fought so desperately and slew so many Sagoths that those of us that were captured killed so many Mahars in their own cities that at last they learned that it were better to leave us alone, and later came the time that the Mahars became too indolent even to catch their own fish except for amusement, and then they needed us to supply their wants, and so a truce was made between the races. Now they give us certain things which we are unable to produce in return for the fish that we catch, and the Mesops and the Mahars live in peace. The Great Ones even come to our islands. It is there, far from the prying eyes of their own Sagoths, that they practice their religious rites in the temples they have builded there with our assistance. If you live among us, you will doubtless see the manner of their worship, which is strange indeed, and most unpleasant for the poor slaves they bring to take part in it." As Ja talked, I had an excellent opportunity to inspect him more closely. He was a huge fellow, standing, I should say, six feet six or seven inches, well-developed and of a coppery red not unlike that of our own North American Indian nor were his features dissimilar to theirs. He had the aquiline nose found among many of the higher tribes, the prominent cheekbones and black hair and eyes, but his mouth and lips were better molded. All in all, Ja was an impressive and handsome creature, and he talked well too, even in the miserable makeshift language we were compelled to use. During our conversation, Ja had taken the paddle and was propelling the skiff with vigorous strokes toward a large island that lay some half-mile from the mainland. 
the skill with which he handled his crude and awkward craft elicited my deepest admiration, since it had been so short a time before that I had made such pitiful work of it. As we touched the pretty level beach, Jaw leapt out and I followed him. Together we dragged the skiff far up into the bushes that grew beyond the sand. "'We must hide our canoes,' explained Jah, "'for the Mizops of Luana are always at war with us, and would steal them if they found them.' He nodded toward an island farther out at sea, and at so great a distance that it seemed but a blur hanging in the distant sky. The upward curve of the surface of Pellucidar was constantly revealing the impossible to the surprised eyes of the outer earthly. To see land and water curving upward in the distance, until it seemed to stand on edge where it melted into the distant sky, and to feel that seas and mountains hung suspended directly above one's head, required such a complete reversal of the perspective and reasoning faculties as almost to stupefy one. No sooner had we hidden the canoe than Ja plunged into the jungle, presently emerging into a narrow but well-defined trail, which wound hither and thither much after the manner of the highways of all primitive folk. But there was one peculiarity about this Mizop trail which I was later to find distinguished them from all other trails that I ever have seen within or without the earth. It would run on, plain and clear and well-defined, to end suddenly in the midst of a tangle of matted jungle, then Jah would turn directly back in his tracks for a little distance, spring into a tree, climb through it to the other side, drop onto a fallen log, leap over a low bush and alight once more upon a distinct trail which he would follow back for a short distance, only to turn directly about and retrace his steps until after a mile or less this new pathway ended as suddenly and mysteriously as the former section. Then he would pass again across some media which would reveal no spore, to take up the broken thread of the trail beyond. As the purpose of this remarkable avenue dawned upon me, I could not but admire the native shrewdness of the ancient progenitor of the Mesops, who hit upon this novel plan to throw his enemies from his track, and delay or thwart them in their attempts to follow him to his deep-buried cities. To you of the outer earth it might seem a slow and tortuous method of travelling through the jungle, but were you a Pellucidar you would realize that time is no factor where time does not exist. So labyrinthine are the windings of these trails, so varied the connecting links and the distances which one must retrace one's steps from the path's ends to find them, that a Mesop often reaches man's estate before he is familiar even with those which lead from his own city to the sea. In fact, three-fourths of the education of the young male Mesop consists in familiarizing himself with these jungle avenues, and the status of an adult is largely determined by the number of trails which he can follow upon his own island. The females never learn them, since from birth to death they never leave the clearing in which the village of their nativity is situated, except that they be taken to mate by a male from another village or captured in war by the enemies of their tribe. After proceeding through the jungle for what must have been upward of five miles, we emerged suddenly into a large clearing in the exact center of which stood as strange an appearing village as one might well imagine. Large trees had been chopped down fifteen or twenty feet above the ground, 
and upon the tops of them spherical habitations of woven twigs, mud-covered, had been built. Each ball-like house was surmounted by some manner of carven image, which, Ja told me, indicated the identity of the owner. Horizontal slits, six inches high and two or three feet wide, served to admit light and ventilation. The entrances to the house were through small apertures in the bases of the trees, and thence upward by rude ladders through the hollow trunks to the rooms above. The houses varied in size from two to several rooms. The largest that I entered was divided into two floors and eight apartments. All about the village, between it and the jungle, lay beautifully cultivated fields in which the Mesops raised such cereals, fruits, and vegetables as they required. Women and children were working in these gardens as we crossed toward the village. At sight of Ja they saluted deferentially, but to me they paid not the slightest attention. Among them and about the outer verge of the cultivated area were many warriors. These too saluted Ja by touching the points of their spears to the ground directly before them. Ja conducted me to a large house in the center of the village, the house with eight rooms, and taking me up into it gave me food and drink. There I met his mate, a comely girl with a nursing baby in her arms. Ja told her of how I had saved his life, and she was thereafter most kind and hospitable toward me even permitting me to hold and amuse the tiny bundle of humanity whom Ja told me would one day rule the tribe, for Ja, it seemed, was the chief of the community. We had eaten and rested, and I had slept, much to Ja's amusement, for it seemed that he seldom if ever did so. And then the red man proposed that I accompany him to the temple of the Mahars, which lay not far from his village. We are not supposed to visit it, he said, but the great ones cannot hear, and if we keep well out of sight they need never know that we have been there. For my part I hate them and always have, but the other chieftains of the island think it best that we continue to maintain the amicable relations which exist between the two races. Otherwise I should like nothing better than to leave my warriors amongst the hideous creatures and exterminate them. Pellucidar would be a better place to live were there none of them. I wholly concurred in Ja's belief, but it seemed that it might be a difficult matter to exterminate the dominant race of Pellucidar. Thus conversing, we followed the intricate trail toward the temple, which we came upon in a small clearing surrounded by enormous trees, similar to those which must have flourished upon the outer crust during the Carboniferous Age. Here was a mighty temple of hewn rock, built in the shape of a rough oval, with rounded roof in which were several large openings. No doors or windows were visible in the sides of the structure, nor was there need of any, except one entrance for the slaves, since, as Ja explained, the Mahars flew to and from their place of ceremonial, entering and leaving the building by means of the apertures in the roof. But, added Ja, there is an entrance near the base, of which even the Mahars know nothing. Come." And he led me across the clearing and about the end, to a pile of loose rock which lay against the foot of the wall. Here he removed a couple of large boulders, revealing a small opening which led straight within the building, or so it seemed, though as I entered after Ja, I discovered myself in a narrow place of extreme darkness. 
We are within the outer wall, said Ja. It is hollow. Follow me closely. The red man groped ahead a few paces and then began to ascend a primitive ladder, similar to that which leads from the ground to the upper stories of his house. We ascended for some forty feet, when the interior of the space between the walls commenced to grow lighter, and presently we came opposite an opening in the inner wall which gave us an unobstructed view of the entire interior of the temple. The lower floor was an enormous tank of clear water, in which numerous hideous mahars swam lazily up and down. Artificial islands of granite rock dotted this artificial sea, and upon several of them I saw men and women like myself. "'What are the human beings doing here?' I asked. "'Wait, and you shall see,' replied Ja. "'They are to take a leading part in the ceremonies which will follow the advent of the Queen. You may be thankful that you are not upon the same side of the wall as they.' Scarcely had he spoken than we heard a great fluttering of wings above, and a moment later a long procession of the frightful reptiles of Pellucidar winged slowly and majestically through the large central opening in the roof and circled in stately manner about the temple. There were several mahars first, and then at least twenty awe-inspiring pterodactyls, thiptars they are called within Pellucidar. Behind these came the queen, flanked by other thiptars, as she had been when she entered the amphitheatre at Futra. Three times they wheeled about the interior of the oval chamber, to settle finally upon the damp, cold boulders that fringed the outer edge of the pool. In the center of one side the largest rock was reserved for the queen, and here she took her place surrounded by her terrible guard. All lay quiet for several minutes after settling to their places. One might have imagined them in silent prayer. The poor slaves upon the diminutive islands watched the horrid creatures with wide eyes. The men, for the most part, stood erect and stately with folded arms, awaiting their doom. But the women and children clung to one another, hiding behind the males. They are a noble-looking race, these cavemen of Pellucidar, and if our progenitors were as they, the human race of the outer crust has deteriorated rather than improved with the march of ages. All they lack is opportunity. We have opportunity and little else." Now the queen moved. She raised her ugly head, looking about. Then, very slowly, she crawled to the edge of her throne and slid noiselessly into the water. Up and down the long tank she swam, turning at ends as you have seen captive seals turn in their tiny tanks, turning upon their backs and diving below the surface. Nearer and nearer to the island she came, until at last she remained at rest before the largest, which was directly opposite her throne. Raising her hideous head from the water, she fixed her great round eyes upon the slaves. They were fat and sleek, for they had been brought from a distant Mahar city where human beings are kept in droves, and bred and fattened as we breed and fatten beef cattle. The queen fixed her gaze upon a plump young maiden. Her victim tried to turn away hiding her face in her hands and kneeling behind a woman. But the reptile, with unblinking eyes, stared on with such fixity that I could have sworn her vision penetrated the woman and the girl's arms to reach at last the very center of her brain. 
Slowly the reptile's head commenced to move to and fro, but the eyes never ceased to bore toward the frightened girl. And then the victim responded. She turned wide, fear-haunted eyes toward the Mahar Queen. Slowly she rose to her feet, and then, as though dragged by some unseen power, she moved as one in a trance straight toward the reptile, her glassy eyes fixed upon those of her captor. To the water's edge she came, nor did she even pause, but stepped into the shadows beside the little island. On she moved toward the Mahar, who now slowly retreated as though leading her victim on. The water rose to the girl's knees, and still she advanced, chained by that clammy eye. Now the water was at her waist, now her armpits. Her fellows upon the island looked on in horror, helpless to avert her doom in which they saw a forecast of their own. The Mahar sank now till only the long upper bill and eyes were exposed above the surface of the water, and the girl had advanced until the end of that repulsive beak was but an inch or two from her face, her horror-filled eyes riveted upon those of the reptile. Now the water passed above the girl's mouth and nose, her eyes and forehead all that showed, yet still she walked on after the retreating Mahar. The queen's head slowly disappeared beneath the surface, and after it went the eyes of her victim, only a slow ripple widened toward the shores to mark where the two had vanished. For a time all was silence within the temple. The slaves were motionless in terror. The Mahars watched the surface of the water for the reappearance of their queen, and presently, at one end of the tank, her head rose slowly into view. She was backing toward the surface, her eyes fixed before her as they had been when she dragged the helpless girl to her doom. And then, to my utter amazement, I saw the forehead and eyes of the maiden come slowly out of the depths, following the gaze of the reptile just as when she had disappeared beneath the surface. On and on came the girl until she stood in water that reached barely to her knees and though she had been beneath the surface sufficient time to have drowned her thrice over, there was no indication, other than her dripping hair and glistening body, that she had been submerged at all. Again and again the queen led the girl into the depths and out again, until the uncanny weirdness of the thing got on my nerves, so that I could have leapt into the tank to the child's rescue had I not taken a firm hold of myself. Once they were below much longer than usual, and when they came to the surface I was horrified to see that one of the girl's arms was gone, gnawed completely off at the shoulder. But the poor thing gave no indication of realizing pain, only the horror in her set eyes seemed intensified. The next time they appeared the other arm was gone, and then the breasts, and then a part of the face. It was awful. The poor creatures on the islands awaiting their fate tried to cover their eyes with their hands to hide the fearful sight. But now I saw that they too were under the hypnotic spell of the reptiles, so that they could only crouch in terror with their eyes fixed upon the terrible thing that was transpiring before them. Finally the queen was under much longer than ever before, and when she rose she came alone and swam sleepily toward her boulder. The moment she mounted it seemed to be the signal for the other Mahars to enter the tank, 
and then commenced, upon a larger scale, a repetition of the uncanny performance through which the Queen had led her victim. Only the women and children fell prey to the Mahars, they being the weakest and most tender, and when they had satisfied their appetite for human flesh, some of them devouring two and three of the slaves, there were only a score of full-grown men left, and I thought for some reason these were to be spared, but such was far from the case. For as the last Mahar crawled to her rock, the Queen's Thiptars darted into the air, circled the temple once, and then, hissing like steam-engines, swooped down upon the remaining slaves. There was no hypnotism here, just the plain, brutal ferocity of the beast of prey, tearing, rending, and gulping its meat. But at that it was less horrible than the uncanny method of the Mahars. By the time the Thiptars had disposed of the last of the slaves, the Mahars were all asleep upon their rocks, and a moment later the great pterodactyls swung back to their posts beside the queen, and themselves dropped into slumber. I thought the Mahars seldom, if ever, slept, I said to Ja. They do many things in this temple which they do not do elsewhere, he replied. The Mahars of Futra are not supposed to eat human flesh, yet slaves are brought here by thousands, and almost always you will find Mahars on hand to consume them. I imagine that they do not bring their Sagoths here because they are ashamed of the practice which is supposed to obtain only among the least advanced of their race. But I would wager my canoe against a broken paddle that there is no Mahar but eats human flesh whenever she can get it." "'Why should they object to eating human flesh?' I asked, if it is true that they look upon us as lower animals. It is not because they consider us their equals that they are supposed to look with abhorrence upon those who eat our flesh,' replied Ja. It is merely that we are warm-blooded animals. They would not think of eating the meat of a thag, which we consider such a delicacy, any more than I would think of eating a snake. As a matter of fact, it is difficult to explain just why this sentiment should exist among them." "'I wonder if they left a single victim,' I remarked, leaning far out of the opening in the rocky wall to inspect the temple better. Directly below me the water lapped the very side of the wall there being a break in the boulders at this point as there was at several other places about the side of the temple. My hands were resting upon a small piece of granite which formed a part of the wall, and all my weight upon it proved too much for it. It slipped, and I lunged forward. There was nothing to save myself, and I plunged head foremost into the water below. Fortunately, the tank was deep at this point, and I suffered no injury from the fall but as I was rising to the surface, my mind filled with the horrors of my position, as I thought of the terrible doom which awaited me the moment the eyes of the reptiles fell upon the creature that had disturbed their slumber. As long as I could I remained beneath the surface, swimming rapidly in the direction of the islands that I might prolong my life to the utmost. At last I was forced to rise for air and as I cast a terrified glance in the direction of the Mahars and the Thiptars, I was almost stunned to see that not a single one remained upon the rocks where I had last seen them, nor, as I searched the temple with my eyes, could I discern any within it. For a moment I was puzzled to account for the thing, until I realized that the reptiles, being deaf, 
could not have been disturbed by the noise my body made when it hit the water, and that as there is no such thing as time within Pellucidar, there was no telling how long I had been beneath the surface. It was a difficult thing to attempt to figure out by earthly standards, this matter of elapsed time. But when I set myself to it, I began to realize that I might have been submerged a second, or a month, or not at all. You have no conception of the strange contradictions and impossibilities which arise when all methods of measuring time, as we know them upon earth, are non-existent. I was about to congratulate myself upon the miracle which has saved me for the moment, when the memory of the hypnotic powers of the Mahars filled me with apprehension, lest they be practicing their uncanny art upon me to the end that I merely imagined that I was alone in the temple. At the thought cold sweat broke out upon me from every pore, and as I crawled from the water onto one of the tiny islands I was trembling like a leaf. You cannot imagine the awful horror which even the simple thought of the repulsive Mahars of Pellucidar induces in the human mind, and to feel that you are in their power, that they are crawling, slimy and abhorrent, to drag you down beneath the waters and devour you. It is frightful but they did not come, and at last I came to the conclusion that I was indeed alone within the temple. How long I should be alone was the next question to assail me, as I swam frantically about once more in search of a means to escape. Several times I called to Ja, but he must have left after I tumbled into the tank, for I received no response to my cries. Doubtless he had felt as certain of my doom when he saw me topple from our hiding-place as I had, and lest he too should be discovered had hastened from the temple and back to his village. I knew that there must be some entrance to the building beside the doorways in the roof, for it did not seem reasonable to believe that the thousands of slaves which were brought here to feed the Mahars the human flesh they craved would all be carried through the air and so I continued my search until at last it was rewarded by the discovery of several loose granite blocks in the masonry at one end of the temple. A little effort proved sufficient to dislodge enough of these stones to permit me to crawl through into the clearing, and a moment later I had scurried across the intervening space to the dense jungle beyond. Here I sank panting and trembling upon the matted grasses beneath the giant trees, for I felt that I had escaped from the grinning fangs of death out of the depths of my own grave. Whatever dangers lay hidden in this island jungle, there could be none so fearsome as those which I had just escaped. I knew that I could meet death bravely enough if it but came in the form of some familiar beast or man, anything other than the hideous and uncanny Mahars. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core. Chapter 9 The Face of Death. I must have fallen asleep from exhaustion. When I awoke, I was very hungry, and after busying myself searching for fruit for a while, I set off through the jungle to find the beach. I knew that the island was not so large but that I could easily find the sea if I did but move in a straight line, but there came the difficulty, as there was no way in which I could direct my course and hold it, 
the sun, of course, being always directly above my head, and the trees so thickly set that I could see no distant object which might serve to guide me in a straight line. As it was, I must have walked for a great distance, since I ate four times and slept twice before I reached the sea. But at last I did so, and my pleasure at the sight of it was greatly enhanced by the chance discovery of a hidden canoe among the bushes, through which I had stumbled just prior to coming upon the beach. I can tell you that it did not take me long to pull that awkward craft down to the water and shove it far out from shore. My experience with Jaw had taught me that if I were to steal another canoe I must be quick about it and get far beyond the owner's reach as soon as possible. I must have come out upon the opposite side of the island from that at which Jaw and I had entered it, for the mainland was nowhere in sight. For a long time I paddled around the shore, though well out, before I saw the mainland in the distance. At the sight of it I lost no time in directing my course toward it for I had long since made up my mind to return to Futra and give myself up, that I might be once more with Perry and Gak the hairy one. I felt that I was a fool ever to have attempted to escape alone, especially in view of the fact that our plans were already well formulated to make a break for freedom together. Of course I realized that the chances of the success of our proposed venture were slim indeed, but I knew that I never could enjoy freedom without Perry so long as the old man lived and I had learned that the probability that I might find him was less than slight. Had Perry been dead, I should gladly have pitted my strength and wit against the savage and primordial world in which I found myself. I could have lived in seclusion within some rocky cave, until I found the means to outfit myself with the crude weapons of the Stone Age, and then set out in search of her whose image had now become the constant companion of my waking hours, and the central and beloved figure of my dreams. But, to the best of my knowledge, Perry still lived, and it was my duty and wish to be again with him, that we might share the dangers and vicissitudes of this strange world we had discovered. And Gak, too. The great shaggy man had found a place in the hearts of us both, for he was indeed every inch a man and a king. Uncouth, perhaps, and brutal, too, if judged too harshly by the standards of a feat twentieth-century civilization but withal noble, dignified, chivalrous, and lovable. Chance carried me to the very beach upon which I had discovered Jah's canoe, and a short time later I was scrambling up the steep bank to retrace my steps from the plain of Futra. But my troubles came when I entered the canyon beyond the summit, for here I found that several of them centered at the point where I crossed the divide, and which one I had traversed to reach the pass I could not for the life of me remember. It was all a matter of chance, so I set off down that which seemed the easiest going, and in this I made the same mistake that many of us do in selecting the path along which we shall follow out the course of our lives, and again learned that it is not always best to follow the line of least resistance. By the time I had eaten eight meals and slept twice I was convinced that I was upon the wrong trail, for between Futra and the inland sea I had not slept at all and had eaten but once. To retrace my steps to the summit of the divide and explore another canyon seemed the only solution of my problem, but a sudden widening and levelness of the canyon just before me seemed to suggest that it was about to open into a level country, and with the lure of discovery strong upon me I decided to proceed but a short distance farther before I turned back. The next turn of the canyon brought me to its mouth 
and before me I saw a narrow plain leading down to an ocean. At my right the side of the canyon continued to the water's edge, the valley lying to my left, and the foot of it running gradually to the sea, where it formed a broad, level beach. Clumps of strange trees dotted the landscape here and there, almost to the water, and rank grass and ferns grew between. From the nature of the vegetation I was convinced that the land between the ocean and the foothills was swampy, though directly before me it seemed dry enough all the way to the sandy strip along which the restless waters advanced and retreated. Curiosity prompted me to walk down to the beach, for the scene was very beautiful. As I passed along beside the deep and tangled vegetation of the swamp, I thought that I saw a movement of the ferns at my left, but though I stopped a moment to look it was not repeated, and if anything lay hid there my eyes could not penetrate the dense foliage to discern it. Presently I stood upon the beach looking out over the wide and lonely sea, across whose forbidding bosom no human being had yet ventured, to discover what strange and mysterious lands lay beyond, or what its invisible islands held of riches, wonders, or adventure. What savage faces, what fierce and formidable beasts were this very instant watching the lapping of the waves upon its farther shore! How far did it extend? Perry had told me that the seas of Pellucidar were small in comparison with those of the outer crust, but even so this great ocean might stretch its broad expanse for thousands of miles. For countless ages it had rolled up and down its countless miles of shore, and yet today it remained all unknown beyond the tiny strip that was visible from its beaches. The fascination of speculation was strong upon me. It was as though I had been carried back to the birth-time of our own outer world, to look upon its lands and seas ages before man had traversed either. Here was a new world, all untouched. It called to me to explore it. I was dreaming of the excitement and adventure which lay before us, could Perry and I but escape the Mahars, when something, a slight noise I imagine, drew my attention behind me. As I turned, Romance, adventure, and discovery in the abstract took wing before the terrible embodiment of all three in concrete form that I beheld advancing upon me. A huge, slimy amphibian it was, with toad-like body and the mighty jaws of an alligator. Its immense carcass must have weighed tons, and yet it moved swiftly and silently toward me. Upon one hand was the bluff that ran from the canyon to the sea, on the other the fearsome swamp from which the creature had sneaked upon me, behind lay the mighty, untracked sea, and before me, in the center of the narrow way that led to safety, stood this huge mountain of terrible and menacing flesh. A single glance at the thing was sufficient to assure me that I was facing one of those long-extinct prehistoric creatures whose fossilized remains are found within the outer crust as far back as the Triassic formation, a gigantic labyrinthodon and there I was, unarmed and with the exception of a loincloth, as naked as I had come into the world. I could imagine how my first ancestor felt that distant prehistoric morn when he encountered for the first time the terrifying progenitor of the thing that had me cornered now beside the restless, mysterious sea. Unquestionably he had escaped, or I should not have been within Pellucidar or elsewhere, 
and I wished at that moment that he had handed down to me with the various attributes that I presumed I have inherited from him, the specific application of the instinct of self-preservation which saved him from the fate which looms so close before me to-day. To seek escape in the swamp or in the ocean would have been similar to jumping into a den of lions to escape one upon the outside. The sea and swamp both were doubtless alive with these mighty carnivorous amphibians, and if not, the individual that menaced me would pursue me into either the sea or the swamp with equal facility. There seemed nothing to do but stand supinely and await my end. I thought of Perry, how he would wonder what had become of me. I thought of my friends of the outer world, and of how they all would go on living their lives in total ignorance of the strange and terrible fate that had overtaken me, or unguessing the weird surroundings which had witnessed the last frightful agony of my extinction. And with these thoughts came a realization of how unimportant to the life and happiness of the world is the existence of any one of us. We may be snuffed out without an instant's warning, and for a brief day our friends speak of us with subdued voices. The following morning, while the first worm is busily engaged in testing the construction of our coffin, they are teeing up for the first hole to suffer more acute sorrow over a sliced ball than they ever did over our, to us, untimely demise. The labyrinthodon was coming more slowly now. He seemed to realize that escape for me was impossible, and I could have sworn that his huge fanged jaws grinned in pleasurable appreciation of my predicament or was it in anticipation of the juicy morsel which would so soon be pulp between those formidable teeth? He was about fifty feet from me when I heard a voice calling to me from the direction of the bluff at my left. I looked and could have shouted in delight at the sight that met my eyes, for there stood Ja, waving frantically to me and urging me to run for it to the cliff's base. I had no idea that I should escape the monster that had marked me for his breakfast but at least I should not die alone. Human eyes would watch me end. It was cold comfort, I presume, but yet I derived some slight peace of mind from the contemplation of it. To run seemed ridiculous, especially toward that steep and unscalable cliff, and yet I did so, and as I ran I saw Ja, agile as a monkey, crawl down the precipitous face of the rocks, clinging to small projections, and the tough creepers that found root-hold here and there. The labyrinthodon evidently thought that Ja was coming to double his portion of human flesh, so he was in no haste to pursue me to the cliff and frighten away this other tidbit. Instead he merely trotted along behind me. As I approached the foot of the cliff I saw what Ja intended doing, but I doubted if the thing would prove successful. He had come down to within twenty feet of the bottom and there, clinging with one hand to a small ledge, and with his feet resting precariously upon tiny bushes that grew from the solid face of the rock, he lowered the point of his long spear until it hung some six feet above the ground. To clamber up that slim shaft, without dragging Jaw down and precipitating both to the same doom from which the copper-colored one was attempting to save me, seemed utterly impossible, and as I came near the spear I told Jaw so and that I could not risk him to try to save myself. But he insisted that he knew what he was doing, and was in no danger himself. "'The danger is still yours,' he called, "'for unless you move much more rapidly than you are now, the Scythic will come upon you and drag you back before ever you are halfway up the spear, 
he can rear up and reach you with ease anywhere below where I stand." Well, Josh should know his own business, I thought, and so I grasped the spear and clambered up toward the red man as rapidly as I could, being so far removed from my simian ancestors as I am. I imagine the slow-witted Scythic, as Ja called him, suddenly realized our intentions and that he was quite likely to lose all his meal instead of having it doubled as he had hoped. When he saw me clambering up that spear he let out a hiss that fairly shook the ground, and came charging after me at a terrific rate. I had reached the top of the spear by this time, or almost, another six inches would give me a hold on Ja's hand when I felt a sudden wrench from below and glancing fearfully downward saw the mighty jaws of the monster close on the sharp point of the weapon. I made a frantic effort to reach Jaw's hand. The Scythic gave a tremendous tug that came near to jerking Jaw from his frail hold on the surface of the rock. The spear slipped from his fingers, and still clinging to it I plunged feet foremost toward my executioner. At the instant that he felt the spear come away from Jaw's hand, the creature must have opened his huge jaws to catch me, for when I came down, still clinging to the butt-end of the weapon, the point yet rested in his mouth and the result was that the sharpened end transfixed his lower jaw. With the pain he snapped his mouth closed. I fell upon his snout, lost my hold upon the spear, rolled the length of his face and head, across his short neck, onto his broad back, and from there to the ground. Scarce had I touched the earth than I was upon my feet, dashing madly for the path by which I had entered this horrible valley. A glance over my shoulder showed me the Scythic engaged in pawing at the spear stuck through his lower jaw, and so busily engaged did he remain in this occupation that I had gained the safety of the cliff-top before he was ready to take up the pursuit. When he did not discover me in sight within the valley, he dashed, hissing, into the rank vegetation of the swamp and that was the last I saw of him. End of chapter 9》Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.